We turn to Second Chronicles chapter 20, and we'll read the first 30 verses. Now it happened after this that the people of Moab, with the people of Ammon, and others with them, besides the Ammonites, came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria. And they are in Hazazan Tamar, which is En Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared, and set himself to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever. And they dwell in it, and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Now all Judah, with their little ones, their wives, and their children, stood before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all you of Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Ruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear nor or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korathites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. So they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa, and as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and inha you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord, and who should praise the beauty of holiness. And they went out before the army, 
and were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. Now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. So when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and there were their dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry which they stripped off for themselves, more than they could carry away. And they were three days gathering the spoil because there was so much. And on the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of that place was called the Valley of Barakah until this day. Then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem with Jehoshaphat in front of them to go back to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. So they came to Jerusalem with stringed instruments and harps and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. Then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we remember uh, the words of Jehu uh, to Jehoshaphat when he had returned from uh, his involvement in that ungodly alliance with Ahab. And uh, Ahab and his uh, troops of Israel had suffered a great defeat. And uh, Jehoshaphat himself was involved in this enterprise contrary to uh, God's will. And the prophet said that wrath is upon you. Now we know that uh, Jehoshaphat repented of uh, his sin. And uh, we saw how uh, he brought forth fruits of repentance. He again resumed his position as a leader among God's people, ordering them in faith according uh, to the word of the Lord. And now he's facing this uh, hostile incursion of a great multitude coming against you, he is told. And we can't help but wonder if Jehoshaphat began to think that yet he was facing the Lord's discipline. And uh, he was perhaps experiencing more of the Lord's indignation against him because of his failure. He certainly knew that he was in the hands of God. We're told in verse fear, uh, 3 that he feared, he feared. But then we also learned that he did not fear with a kind of panic, nor uh, with a kind of uh, anxious scrambling to uh, organize his military in some frenzied uh, response, he was probably facing the crisis of his life and of his reign. And uh, indeed, this was a test of his faith. And we learn from this passage before us that he again proved himself to be a man who trusted in the Lord, a godly king who cared for God's people and whose reign, despite weaknesses, was characterized uh, by faith in God an action that demonstrated that. And we see that this uh, morning in this passage where Jehoshaphat leads God's people in faith. 
in the faith, in faith in the Lord's salvation and deliverance from this great uh, threat that they faced. And uh, Jehoshaphat certainly plays a very prominent role. He appears in the lead uh, at every point in this account, uh, beginning with the fact that he took the lead in seeking the Lord's salvation. In verses 3 and 4, we read of his response, that Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast uh, throughout all Judah. shows the seriousness with which he took this situation. He went to God in prayer, but he also uh, not only fasted himself, but proclaimed a fast so that all, all the people might acknowledge their utter dependence upon God, abstaining from food as they, as they called upon him in earnest prayer. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord, and from the cities of Judah they came uh, to seek the Lord. Joshua took the lead in calling for a time of prayer and fasting. And here again we might observe that godly leadership is always leadership in prayer. Godly leadership is not, first of all, to be defined in terms of giving orders or in terms of organizing followers. That's an important thing to remember, always, in our families. Take note, husbands and, and fathers and, and mothers. Take note, uh, ministers and elders and deacons. Godly leadership is a matter of continuing in prayer. Now, I'm using language that uh, you may not realize is repeated uh, a number of times in our church order. That is our rules of cooperation as churches together in the United Reformed Churches. And its definition of the tasks of office bearers, beginning with ministers of the word, and then describing the tasks of elders, and then the tasks of deacons, in every case, the first thing that is mentioned with respect to their task as office bearers is continuing in prayer. Because godly leadership involves a dependence upon God for his blessing upon our work, his enabling for us to seek to be faithful in that work. And again, that applies to any kind of position that we might have uh, as leaders. That certainly applies also in the civil realm. Civil leaders that are uh, aware of their responsibility and their accountability before God and aware of their inability to fulfill their office faithfully for the good of people, will be men and women of prayer. Solomon received great wisdom from the Lord. But we might say that he received wisdom from the Lord after he had already showed what is the highest kind of wisdom in terms of realizing his need for God. When God appeared to him, offering, uh, asking him uh, what he wanted, his response basically was, I can't. I can't lead this people. I need help. And he asked God for wisdom. If any of you acts, lacks wisdom, wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously. Wisdom asks for wisdom. I'm reading a, a biography by uh, former Vice President Mike Pence. And uh, the name of this book is called So Help Me God. And uh, you might recognize that that is language that is quite characteristic of many forms of oath-taking. Uh, with respect to uh, office in the church, office in the civil realm. So help me God. But it's a fitting title, not only as 
expressing his outlook on his service as uh, vice president a few years ago, but it really expresses his whole view of public service for many, many years. And uh, the account of his life shows that he was a man who truly prayed about things. As a congressman, as a governor of Indiana, his, uh, his life was, was marked by prayerfulness. And I think that goes a long way in explaining the fact that he, he uh, was a man of integrity and, uh, and activity, and in a way that really was aimed at serving the people over whom he was placed. He's kind of an encouraging example, even in the civil realm, of someone who continually sought God's help in order to fulfill his office. Jehoshaphat prayed, and his prayer is uh, its a pattern uh, of believing prayer. When we look at the content of, of his prayer, we can all learn something about that prayer as a kind of model prayer. Let's look at some of its its features, beginning with the fact that he begins with the greatness of God. In verse 6, he says, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand, is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? I thought of the opening words of the Lord's Prayer in reading this, where we pray to our Father in heaven. We pray mindful that God is great, that he is in heaven. We pray for the coming of his kingdom. We pray to one whose power is unlimited. We're concerned for the hallowing of his name. And so this prayer begins with God. Secondly, he pleads God's covenant faithfulness. God of our fathers. That's that's the language of covenant awareness. Our God. That's the language of praying to a God who is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And as such, he keeps his promises. And Jehoshaphat pleads God's faithfulness as a promise-keeping God. In verse 7, he says, Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? Those were the promises that God gave to Abraham. Those were promises that God fulfilled to Abraham's descendants. And Jehoshaphat pleads those promises. And so our prayers also ought to be marked by an awareness that we pray to a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. We come to him in the awareness that he came to us first, that he established this relationship of grace with us. And we are admitted into his presence and in his favor, and we can call him our God and our Father in heaven, mindful of his grace to us in Christ Jesus, in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. So we might say that in New, in New Testament, in New Covenant terms, we pray in Jesus' name, in the awareness that God is our covenant-keeping, faithful God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, and closely related to that, he pleads God's special promises connected to his dwelling place, his dwelling place among them. See, Jehoshaphat uh, knew about Solomon. In fact, he's quoting Solomon in his prayer, where he says of Israel, they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, 
And then there's quotation marks. If disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before your temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear us. You can go back to Second uh, Chronicles chapter 6 and listen to Solomon's prayer. And basically, Jehoshaphat is taking the words of that prayer and uh, and pleading those promises in the present instance. It's also interesting that he knew the significance of the place in which he was leading God's people in prayer. In verse 5, we're told, Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And we go back to this uh, reference that I had just mentioned in chapter 7, this time of the, the, the formal um, consecration of the temple. And what do we read there? Well, we read in chapter 7, verse 15 and 16, these words. Now my eyes will be open. These are the words of the Lord to his people in answer to this prayer of Solomon. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Joshua knew the Bible. Now that's a way of saying that Joshua knew God's wonderful works of the past and he he knew the significance of God's name being placed on the temple as a place of prayer where he gave special promises to his people in time of need that he would hear them. And you see, brothers and sisters, we're, we're taught something about prayer here. Have you learned to plead the promises of God? Have you learned to treasure up uh, a storehouse of those precious promises that are found throughout Scripture and learn to repeat them to God? That's the kind of prayer that, that honors God, honors his truth, his faithfulness, it's a kind of prayer that he is pleased to hear and answer in his grace. Fourthly, he appeals to God's justice because they were facing a great injustice. Who was coming against them? Well, they were the, the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites. These were people from Mount Seir, descendants of Esau. Descendants of Lot, right? The Ammonites and the Moabites, uh, Ammon and Moab were children of Lot. They were relatives. And God had insisted when he brought Israel through the wilderness into the land of Canaan that they could not attack these relatives of theirs. They couldn't steal from them. They had to bypass their land. They had to respect their land. And so they did. And now these very nations are coming against them. They're facing injustice. They're facing ingratitude. That's the significance of verse 11. Here they are rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. Do you know that it's okay? Do you, do you know that it's right to make this kind of case in prayer? We know that Christ commands us to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us, and to do good to those who misuse us. But that doesn't mean that we're stones or logs of wood 
insensitive to sins committed against us and the unfairness and the injustice with which we may be treated and praying for our enemies and loving them and wishing for their conversion does not mean that we cannot commit ourselves to God, not taking vengeance for ourselves, but in a, in a, in a, in a proper sense, we may make our complaint to God. Jesus himself, when he was reproached, he didn't, he didn't revile again, but committed himself to him who judges justly. He gave his case over to the Lord. Didn't deny the reality of the injustice and the unfairness that he suffered. He made it known to God and committed it to him. And we can feel free to do the same when we suffer injustice from others. And then fifthly, and this is really at the heart of the whole matter, he confesses utter dependence upon the Lord. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes upon are upon you. And remember, remember what Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat did earlier on in his reign, how he demonstrated godly leadership in building the defenses of Judah, building up their army, ordering them, organizing them as an effective uh, army. But here we're given an account where we see very clearly that uh, Jehoshaphat did not trust in princes. He did not trust in horses and chariots. But he committed himself and all the people into God's protection. Jehoshaphat led in seeking the Lord's salvation. And then we read in verse 13, and everyone stood there before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children stood before the Lord. And you hear a verse like that, you might wonder, well, isn't that rather kind of obvious that the people were gathered there? Shouldn't that be mentioned at the beginning? Well, it has a special effect and a special meaning here after this prayer. I think we can sense it. Here's Jehoshaphat very publicly pleading with God leading them in prayer. And he says, Amen. And all the people are standing there together. And you can you can well imagine the solemnity of that moment. And perhaps the silence and the expectation. Hesitation. What next? Do we make our way home? Well, they didn't have to wait long for an answer. Because we then read that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, and he said, Listen, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then we have this tremendous, uh, rousing uh, speech that this prophet from the Lord makes. And basically, we can summarize the content in, in three things. And each one of them is repeated. The first one is, don't be afraid. Don't fear. And the second one is the assurance that the, the battle is the Lord's. That's also repeated twice. And then thirdly, the Lord is with you. Again, twice. And then take your position. Right? That's what we hear. Basically, when uh, we read in verse 17, you will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourself and stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. 
Jehoshaphat leads the people in seeking the Lord's salvation. And then they hear from this word of assurance of the outcome. And then we see Josh, Jehoshaphat, rather, leading the people in praise. Praise in response to the assurance of the Lord's salvation. And here I want to uh, call our attention to five responses. First of all, they all bow down to worship. Joshua first again in verse 18. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And then secondly, the Levites and the the Kohathites and the Korathites, they stand up and they stand up to sing. We read that in verse 19. The Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korathites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. And then thirdly, everyone goes to bed, right? Because the next verse says that they rose early the next morning. And you don't, you don't get up early in the morning without having gone to bed. And isn't that something itself, huh? The enemies are at the gate and uh, he gives his beloved sleep. It's like they cast their, their burdens upon the Lord because he cares for them. And then they go and sleep soundly. The promises of God are like uh, the pillow upon which we can rest at night. Sometimes it's a good idea to, to end, to end the night by offering some praise and then sleep, sleep well, trusting in God's grace and his care. And then fourthly, Jehoshaphat calls upon everyone to believe. That's what we have in verse 20. Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. There are many instance, instances in, in history where uh, leaders uh, showed tremendous leadership in times of crisis. And sometimes they've showed that by great speeches. Think of uh, Winston Churchill leading the Brits in their resistance to, to Germany. Uh, during World War II, we will fight them. <laughs> we will fight them on the beaches. We will fight in the streets and in the fields. We will fight them in the landing ground. We will fight them in the hills. It's a famous speech. He aroused God's people to expect that they will be victorious. He also appeals to God in that speech. Or the famous speech by Henry V. You can read that in Shakespeare's work as he aroused the troops at the Battle of Agincourt against the French. Tremendous ways of stirring people up to fight. Even think of George Bush. Probably the highlight of his presidency was when he stood on that pile of rubbish on 9-11 with his arm around a firefighter and said, those people that knocked down these towers are going to hear from us. That's what he's remembered for. Arousing people with courage to face dangers. But this is altogether different. It's totally different. God said he would do the fighting. Stand still and see. And Jehoshaphat, he believed that. And he called everyone to believe that that indeed is just what the Lord would do. And indeed, that's what the Lord did. But there's one more thing. I said there's five five things. And uh, finally, 
uh, Jehoshaphat uh, deployed the shock troops. If you know anything about military terminology, shock troops, right? Those are the elite soldiers, the, the uh, avant-garde. They take the lead. They're the ones that are the best and the bravest. And they're the ones that would most likely suffer the most casualties. They go first. But the only shocking thing in this passage is, who are they? It's the choir. It's the choir going before the people of Judah, singing praise to the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. Worship, joy, and praise has already begun before one enemy was defeated. Jehoshaphat led the people in faith, expecting that God would fulfill his word, taking the lead also in a response of praise. And that leads us to see finally how he took the lead in joy in the greatness of the Lord's salvation. We're told that the Lord set the enemy armies against each other. In verse 22 and, and 23, when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir. Now, we ought not to think that uh, this involved uh, some angelic host setting an ambush. More likely, it's probably some ancient enmity between these relatives and some suspicion that arose among them that led some of them to take advantage of a strategic place to ambush the at rest. But what it did was spread confusion and mutual destruction among these three people. These three people. So they destroyed themselves. That's what's said there. The people of Ammon and and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. And actually, that is characteristic of the way God often sends confusion and a kind of madness to the people that oppose him and his church. They end up eating one another, so to speak. But that's what he did here and literally removed the threat by bringing them to destroy one another. And then we see that Judah became more than conquerors. They spent three days gathering the wealth that was found on their dead bodies. We read in verse 25. And the Lord was greatly praised and glorified in this. And we see that in the uh, the celebrations that followed. An assembly of thanksgiving that took place on the fourth day there in the valley of Barakah. They named that valley Blessing because that's where uh, the people blessed God with thanksgiving and praise. And then secondly, there is this joyful procession to Jeru uh, Jerusalem led by Jehoshaphat making their way with these instruments all the way into Jerusalem, all the way to the temple where it appears there was a final gathering with their instruments of praise. And this meant rest and peace for the kingdom of Judah and the fear of God that had come over all the surrounding nations. Now in closing, brothers and sisters, just a, just a few words drawing some of these things together by way of further application. As is evident in this passage, Jehoshaphat indeed appears. He's clearly seen as a true and faithful king over God's people. He's, uh, he's literally in the forefront at, at uh, every point, going before the people 
as a leader in prayer, in faith, as a director of events, as an example, as an inspiration to them all. And in this, we say, yes, he does foreshadow his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also realize that he himself falls into the shadow before the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jehoshaphat is is an example of faith, but he is not the author of faith, right? That's how the book of Hebrew describes the Lord Jesus. He is the, the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the one who has gone before to open the way for us to God. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God, having obtained by himself eternal redemption for all God's people. We're privileged to hear this prayer of Jehoshaphat, but how much more privileged are we to hear the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ? Jehoshaphat could never say such things as Christ said in John chapter 17. Things like, I have finished the work which you have given to me to do. I have glorified you on the earth. And that work was to give eternal life to as many as the Father had given him. And that's what he accomplished by his suffering and death. And so from the inspiration of Jehoshaphat as a leader, we we turn to the inspiration and the great salvation of our Savior. And we see reason to rejoice. And we see reason in him to be strong in faith. And that's the next thing I want to say in uh, in application. In light of Christ's salvation, we are given here a great summons uh, to to strong faith. Strong faith, not just not just true faith, not just faith itself, but strong faith, absolute trust in God's word, so as to praise Him, to praise Him with certain expectation of His presence and of His help before we experience it, before it comes. Right? That's what's so remarkable about this passage. The people were stirred up to praise and to thank God with the expectation of victory because they did believe in his word. They trusted in him. And that isn't that where the triumph of faith appears. To trust in God. Not when the trouble is past. Not when the clouds have lifted and the sun is shining again. Not when the prison doors are open, right? Think of Paul and Silas giving thanks and praise to God in the prison cell. Not while we're still in the fire, if you will, but to praise him in the storm, to praise him in the fire, to be determined to praise him, believing in his salvation. There's a sense in which the greater our trials, the, the greater the challenges we face, the, the greater the importance of such faith and such praise, and the more God is glorified by it. So we should take these passages as an arousing summons to have strong faith in God. And in that connection, finally, we see the connection between faith and praise. We heard our call to worship from, from Psalm uh, 22, verses 3 and 5. In that psalm, we also read these verses in verse 3 and following. You are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. God manifests his kingship, his glory, to a people who believe in him and who praise him. 
Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. And then verse 25, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. That's another feature of this praise as well, isn't it? It wasn't simply a private kind of thing. It was the praise of a great multitude of people joining together. And that's one of the reasons why God appointed assemblies of his people to join their voices in prayer, because we feed off each other, so to speak. We are aroused as we hear the voices around us, and we are helped to praise. We are helped. We're lifted up, perhaps, our narrow, self-focused feelings. That's why I've always said one of the most important things to do when you're feeling sad is go to church. And don't say, i got to wait till I feel better. I might cry. Well, you might. That's okay. Hopefully others will cry with you, and hopefully tears will turn to tears of joy and thankfulness and praising God. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Yes, praise is a private activity, and it's a praise, it's an activity that belongs in families, and it's an activity that belongs to the corporate assembly of God's people, to praise the Lord. Well, may God bless this word to strengthen and help us in our faith, that we might abound more and more in thanksgiving and praise, and learn by experience how a determined exercise of praise can be most significant in lifting our spirits and bringing God's presence to us in such a comforting way. Amen.